It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, this is the Christmas Eve edition of the podcast. I hope you're getting ready for a great holiday weekend or Chinese food, as the case may be. Um, it's Friday, and usually what I tell you on Friday is that I'd like you to tune into Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. That part is true. But usually I say, you know, we're scrambling around, making last minute changes. Not so much today. Uh, Washington's kind of shut down. And uh, Joe Biden, I looked at the White House email. The president has no public activities today. He's probably gone to Delaware if he's not on his way. And, uh, you know, not a lot's happening, right? I mean, there's plenty happening in terms of what we're going to talk about here today. But I don't see a lot of moving parts. I mean, unlike in previous Christmases, when I knew that somehow... Even if it was 2 in the morning, if it was Christmas morning, you know, I would wake up and somebody would send me Donald Trump's latest tweet and I'd have to make adjustments to the show. And if anything does happen, obviously we'll deal with it. But it's a little bit quiet, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So let's have a couple of appetizers before we get to the main course. Marjorie Taylor Greene, according to Insider and her own financial disclosure statement, owns stock in three vaccine makers, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Johnson and Johnson. The holdings are between a thousand and fifteen thousand dollars each. Uh, not a big deal. There's no suggestion of improper trading here, except that the Congresswoman uh, has railed against vaccine mandates and said that she will not get a COVID 19 vaccine. She was on Steve Bannon's podcast last month. She said, I'm not vaccinated and I'm not getting the vaccine. And she went after vaccine Nazis because we don't have. Uh, enough Hitler analogies in this country for ruining our country. So she doesn't want it. She doesn't believe in it. She won't get it, but happy to make some money off the companies that do. Okay, it's fine. Free country, right? All right. Uh, You know, I've been following this sex in the city situation where three different women have come out to accuse Mr. Big on the show, actor Chris Noth, of sexual assault. He's denied every case. Now we have the fourth woman coming out, according to the Daily Mail, Uh, And this is the first of the women who's actually on the record using her name. Her name is Lisa Gentile. She says she was sexually abused uh, by Noth back in 2002. Uh, She met him at a restaurant in Manhattan. Uh, One day, one night, she went to his apartment. Uh, I'm sorry, she took him to her apartment and he began kissing her and groping her. She did not want that. Uh, he tried to get her to have sex with her. She finally was able to push him off. And then she says he got mad and called her a tease and a B word. Um, and the next day, according to Gentile's account, and she's got uh, Gloria Allred as her lawyer, uh, Noth called her friend's phone and warned that if she told another person what happened, she would be blacklisted in the entertainment industry. Allred's things had a serious emotional impact on her. Now, I don't know obviously, the veracity of these claims, but it kind of is getting a little reminiscent of the Andrew Cuomo situation where you start to wonder, well, even if a couple of them are embellishing or not telling the truth, and I'm not saying they are, uh, the fact that there are two, three, now four women who don't know each other coming forth and making these claims um, certainly is cause for concern. Uh, This is interesting. You know, Donald Trump's getting ready to launch his uh, social media company, I guess, early next year, which is not too far off. According to the Washington Post, a Chinese firm 
which is helping the former president take this company public, has been the target of investigations by federal securities regulators who say the firm misrepresented shell companies with no products and few employees as ambitious growing enterprises. According to documents and interviews, uh, the name of this outfit is ARC Capital, A-R-C, an investment advisory based in Shanghai. Hmm has repeatedly helped create or finance companies with little or no revenue or no customers, no office locations, uh, according to a Washington Post review of various documents. One of these shell companies claimed to be developing autonomous drone software despite having zero employees. Another said it operated a publicly traded in-home bakery specializing in freshly made cakes and cupcakes uh, before then pivoting and saying, well, actually what we're into is touchscreen technologies. Uh, okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say this sounds a little sketchy. And look, Donald Trump over the years has done business with companies and people who haven't necessarily been the most upstanding. Maybe this indicates nothing because there are there there are certain legalities that you have to follow, and this company hasn't been charged with anything. Uh, and maybe it in- indicates that he's having a hard time finding a more uh, reputable corporate partner. And maybe it's just interesting, but a little bit digging by the Washington Post. All right, I'm going to start now, story number one, with the jury verdict yesterday in Minnesota. Uh, The woman, the police officer, former police officer, Kimberly Potter, who was uh, charged with first and second degree manslaughter in the fatal shooting of Dante Wright, was convicted of those charges. Uh, Wright was an unarmed 20-year-old black man. Uh, and her conviction, her, her conviction, excuse me, capped a year, you know, really is an ending 2021 with these racially charged trials, you know, going back to uh, the Carl Rittenhouse uh, trial in Kenosha, um, the conviction of three men in the murder of Ahmad Arbery, and, of course, the conviction of Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd murder, also in the Minneapolis area. Uh, so in, in the midst of these, you know, the killing of Wright just added fuel to a very troubling racially charged fire. And um, she always claimed it was an accident, that it was body cam video that showed her being rather stunned after she used her handgun on Wright. Holy S, I just shot him. I grabbed the wrong effing gun. I shot him, she claimed in court that she was meaning to use her taser. And and since she's a trained police officer, obviously that raises questions about, was this negligence? Was it an honest mistake? That was the defense. Uh, That trial was televised. You may have seen clips of Kimberly Potter uh, breaking down on the stand. She showed very little emotion when the uh, verdict was read. But the thing, and just rereading the details of the case, that just tears at my heartstrings, is that this all stemmed from a a traffic stop, a routine traffic stop, you know? And, 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 And that's the thing that sends a message to minorities in this country that, you know, um, you're always in danger of being pulled over for something. So why was he pulled over in the first place? Dante Wright was pulled over because he had expired tags and an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror, which is illegal in Minnesota. I don't understand the air freshener thing, but nevertheless. Okay, now, 
nobody's painting him as a choir boy. When he was pulled over, what the officers discovered was that he had an outstanding arrest warrant for a gross misdemeanor weapons violation. And they tried to arrest him. And, you know, again, had he just quietly complied, then this wouldn't have happened. He struggled with another officer at the scene who was trying to handcuff him. And that's when Kimberly Potter uh, drew her gun and threatened to tase him and then fired a single shot. Now, I get it, you know, uh, a scuffle with officers, uh, outstanding arrest warrant, but he didn't have a gun. He didn't have a knife. So why did she need to shoot him at that particular time? Uh, that was the quick case in the trial. The jury has reached its verdict. And I, I think it's fair to say that with the conviction of Derek Chauvin, with the conviction of Kimberly Potter, and in some of these other cases, you know, we are long past the era when, you know, mostly white juries would let police officers and others off the hook in these blatant or cases of either murder or manslaughter involving young black men almost universally. It's just such a tragedy, such a tragedy for everybody involved. All right, number two, uh, if you have turned on a television set lately or looked at your phone, you know that uh, we are uh, in the middle of the Omicron surge, and it's totally screwed up a lot of people's Christmas travel plans. Over 3,000 flights canceled globally because at these airlines, including United, JetBlue, and others, um, a lot of crew members have tested positive for COVID-19 and therefore can't work those flights. And some of these airlines just aren't able to get the aircraft off the ground. So it's chaos, I think, at a lot of these airports. A number of new cases in the U.S. every day is a quantum leap. Uh, I've talked earlier about how it was 120,000 and 150,000. Uh, today's average daily number, 186,000 new cases. And in some cases, this is back to the peak of the pandemic, or at least the peak of the Delta surge. And it could even reach the peak of the pandemic, given the way it's kind of doubling and, and quadrupling. Um, now, the good news is, as you probably know, it appears from the evidence we have uh, that Omicron is not quite as deadly as earlier variants, that it's, you get milder symptoms. That's particularly true if you're vaccinated. Uh, and meanwhile, the test situation, which I talked about yesterday, is just um, absolutely crazy. I mean, you see the lines, people lined up seemingly for miles just to get a test to see whether they have COVID. Uh, I know people who've tried to get a test, have called all these places. You go, you have to wait and wait and wait. You can't get an at-home test anymore. And, you know, when Joe Biden gave that interview to ABC's David Muir and said, no, oh, he keeps saying it's not a failure. But then he said, well, you know, we could have done this maybe a month ago or six months ago. Yes, that's the whole point. You don't wait. We knew there would be other variants. We didn't know it would be this particular one. We didn't know that it would be quite so transmissible, the way it would spread, almost like a wildfire spreads through a forest. But we weren't out of the woods. We needed these tests. Tests are not a panacea, but they're a very important tool. And you know who's getting, when I say rare, I mean incredibly rare amount of media praise across different news organizations and, and right, left, and center, and that is Donald Trump. Why? Because we had this situation where Joe Biden gave a speech and the president said, uh, you know, I'm very glad that Donald Trump got his booster and I want to thank the previous administration for the development of these vaccines. And Trump, you know, said he appreciated it. And then 
that wasn't the end of it. He had an interview with Candace Owens of the Daily Wire, and she started to sort of say, well, what's the point of vaccines since people who are vaccinated are getting this stuff anyway? And here's the former president saying the vaccine worked, but some people aren't taking it. The ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. But it's still their choice, and if you take the vaccine, you're protected. Look, the results of the vaccine are very good, says Trump, and if you do get it, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine. Let me read that again. Donald Trump says people aren't dying when they take the vaccine. And since so many of the people who are not taking the vaccine, and they're very varied reasons, but so many of them are people who voted for Donald Trump, are people on the Republican or conservative side of the spectrum, this is what they have needed to hear. When I see the pundits on television saying, well, you know, it would have been better if he'd said this months ago. Why didn't he have to wait for Biden? Um, yeah, okay, that's true. But now he's saying it. And now I think it should be played up. I think the clip should be replayed. And I think the media are right to give him credit because if he starts speaking out, uh, doing the right thing in my view, uh, maybe now that he feels he's getting some credit, not just from the press, but from his successor, then that would be a very good thing. Uh, meanwhile, Axios has a poll saying that uh, people uh, who are unvaccinated in this country, they already have low trust in the federal government, and that plummeted during this past year. So according to this survey, uh, black Americans reported much higher levels of mask use, social distancing, and trust in the federal government, regardless of their vaccination status. By contrast, Republicans were far less likely to wear masks and more likely to say they have returned to a, quote, normal pre-COVID life. And this also correlates uh, with, you know, the vaccination rates as well. You know, I did a story on all this yesterday for Special Report, and uh, it was basically was about how the media coverage has been all over the friggin' map, saying Omicron is dangerous, Omicron is taking over our lives. No, Omicron is not really anything to worry about. Eh, if you get it, it'll just be mild. And, you know, different experts saying different things. And, you know, since most people in the media are not um, scientists with a specialty in infectious disease, they rely for guidance on these various, you know, doctors and scientists and academics, some of whom have very different views of what the impact, ultimate impact of Omicron will be. Anyway, the reason I mentioned special report is that now that at the Fox News Washington Bureau, we are back to um, sort of where we were a few months ago. Um, I'm producing this piece. It takes a number of people to produce a taped uh, story for broadcast. And so I've got the editor, you know, I write the script and then I have to do a, a track and then I do a little on-camera tag. So the editor who's putting the piece together is working from home. The producer, who's helping me find the sound and making suggestions about the pictures that are going to be used, is working from her home. And then, you know, about an hour before airtime, we do a Zoom call, so I'm just seeing it in a tiny screen on my phone, to make sure the piece makes sense and has the right emphasis and has the right video and, and all of that. We did that during the pandemic for a year and a half, but it's a much harder to do television that way. And it's not a complaint, it's just kind of an effort to show you how it works behind the scenes when you don't have most people in the office. Which leads me to this fascinating story in the New York Times, uh, obviously aimed mostly at white-collar people, but I can personally relate to this. The story says, it starts off, people need a vacation. They always have. But especially when the office is closed and work is what happens when you're near your phone, which is to say every waking hour, 
Employees need to recharge. Some are quietly asking permission to rest. Others know their break is overdue, and now they're getting nudges from the boss to log off. Two years into this pandemic, uh, office workers and their bosses are faced with this question. What constitutes an out-of-office status when people aren't in the office in the first place? So the, the Times story goes on to say that CEOs are now mandating some fun because they're worried about their people burning out. You know, you don't take any vacations at all and all this stress and you're always on call. I mean, the great thing about working at home is you're home. The not so great thing about working at home is that you're home, meaning you're always kind of connected and you're always kind of available and the kind of the, the lines that used to exist between, you know, you go to the office, you come home and just working from home and dealing with kids, et cetera, have been totally blurry. So they, some companies are telling people to unplug, take some time off, stop checking Slack. Um, the technology company called Notarize has, has a week off that is called Operation Chillax. You got to chill, you got to relax. Um, a decade ago, according to some data here, uh, one third of American workers survey took the whole week off between Christmas and New Year's. I mean, you know that. Lots of people don't work that week. But now, last year, one-third of Americans paid time off went unused on average. Other people were sort of waiting, saying, well, you know, I'm not going to take my vacation till there's someplace I really want to go and things are returning to kind of sort of normal. And a lot of people thought a couple months ago that would happen in Christmas 2021, and obviously it has not. Or maybe you wanted to go somewhere and your flight got canceled. So... It's just an interesting thing. No executives want to see their staff broken down, and some are starting to take mandatory vacations as seriously as they take their work. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to some other items here. Story number three. This was a piece on Politico that has gotten a lot of ridicule, not because of Politico, but because of the White House aides who are speaking anonymously or on background, the names can't be used, they're behind the curtain, about how they're kind of ticked off that they didn't get invited to more holiday season things at the Biden White House. I'll just read you some of this before I weigh in with my own thoughts. Many White House aides are feeling gloomy this holiday season, so much so that they anonymously fumed excuse me, to West Wing Playbook in the hope it may alert senior leaders to the problem. So they, some of these people, remember in the Trump White House, this happened like every day, it was, but it was about much more serious stuff. You know, every day there'd be people close to the president say he's screwing up by doing X. I mean, and then there were all these leak investigations. And I never blamed Donald Trump for worrying that the people who work for him uh, were certainly willing to throw him under the bus constantly. It's been on for four years, but particularly the first couple of years. Um, either because they'd lost a policy battle or they were just pissed or they liked the attention, whatever. Anyway, what the Biden White House aides are saying, the unnamed people, uh, first of all, the political story says that many are looking to get out. Um, they wanted to wait till they're at least in the job a year so it won't look weird to bail out. Uh, okay, here's one unnamed White House official. A lot of the natural coordination that happens in a typically functioning White House has been lost. And there's been no proactive effort to make up for it through intentional team building. In other words, in the era of COVID, a lot of things you ordinarily would get invited to, or maybe you were spending part of that time working from home, went away, as they did in many workplaces across America. Um, staffers are experiencing their fair share of burnout. 
Uh, more people are working remotely. Communication often done virtually. So there's less of an office culture there. I can relate to that. There have been attempts to build uh, camaraderie, such as informal happy hours and group dinners, but largely those have fallen short. Some staffers say it's the result of an insular, top-heavy White House of longtime Biden aides who are distant from much of the staff. No new friends in Biden world, goes the refrain. And others say it's just poor management. The small perks of working in the White House, like the chance to take part in holiday parties and ceremonies, also been in short supply. Uh, for July 4th party, uh, most White House staff could attend only if they worked as unpaid volunteers staffing the event, according to an email. Uh, for the Thanksgiving turkey pardon and the Christmas tree lighting, the attendance was decided by a lottery system. So if you were lucky, you got in. If you weren't lucky, you didn't get in. A lottery system also used uh, to dole out time slots for the holiday tours. Because, you know, everybody who works in the White House, they've got family. They want to see the White House. It's not, the White House is especially beautiful this time of year with the Christmas tree and the decorations. I know from years of going to White House Christmas parties, which basically were stopped Donald Trump, by Donald Trump pre-COVID and now have been stopped by COVID. Uh, so basically, here's another blind quote. No one expects business as usual during the pandemic, but it's beyond demoralizing. It's insulting, especially when you see DNC and Hill staff and other DC types get invited. You know what? I mean, just stop whining. You, you are so privileged to work for a president, to work in the White House, even if you're working remotely, and you're, you're going to deliberately trash the place and complain about management because you didn't get to go to the party and you weren't able to give your, you know, parents a holiday tour. You're working for the White House. It sounds so petty. Suck it up. If you have low morale, deal with it. A lot of people don't even have jobs. Or they have jobs where, you know, they're working in a coal mine. Or they're driving a truck. Or they're frontline healthcare workers who were burned out from the incredibly long hours they're working in hospitals, which are overwhelmed now by both COVID cases and cases of other people with other illnesses or people who've put off surgery and whatever. Just get over yourselves, all right? Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, number four. This uh, op-ed piece in the New York Times by Ben Ritz of the, of the very liberal Progressive Policy Institute is about Joe Manchin and the Build Back Better bill. And, and I just... I love this piece because it's the kind of point that should have been made in a lot of the reporting on this $2 trillion bill, which, of course, Manchin blew up with that appearance on Fox News Sunday. Now they're trying to piece it back together. We'll see. But it, it, it has a, it's a little bit more sympathetic toward Manchin's arguments. And this, you know, a couple of journalists have gotten to this point or, or hinted at it. But this is a major reason why Joe Manchin won't go along with the Biden bill, angering his party, angering many in the media. Why are you single-handedly stopping the Biden agenda? You're undermining democracy. And as I've said before, democracy means you got to get 50 votes if your party holds the White House to pass up in the Senate. Joe Manchin's entitled to have his objections. So here's the, the substance of it. Manchin's been saying this to the White House for months. The Democrats have been trying to bring the price tag down. You remember, it was three and a half trillion, then they agreed to go below two trillion. But rather than focusing on a few top priorities, this piece says, they wedged almost every major social program Biden had proposed into a bill and relied on arbitrary expiration dates to make it seem less expensive. This is a very old 
smoke and mirrors beltway trick. So, according to the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, the programs that are still jammed into this Build Back Better bill would cost more than $4.7 trillion, so that's what, uh, more than double the now nominal cost, if they were made permanent. So here's, here's how the magic works. And just to pick up from the piece, it sets the Democrats up for failure. Extending these programs without adding to the national debt would uh, likely require raising taxes by an additional $3 trillion over the next decade, which needless to say is almost impossible. Okay, if Democrats cannot agree on how to pay for these social programs, the only alternative would be to allow these programs to expire after a few years. And you know what happens then. What, so suddenly, families who had been getting tens of thousands of dollars in benefits, let's say the child tax credit, are told, you can't get this money anymore. And many families never got it in the first place. But it's so hard, it is virtually impossible Look at Obamacare in Washington to take away federal benefits once they are part of the budget. And so some states and cities don't want to do this because they have to, in some of these programs, they got to contribute a share. And then, you know, there have been instances when the feds have pulled the plug and then the states, the governors and the mayors are left with, well, how are we going to pay for this expensive program now that we no longer have these dollars from Washington? So it is this game of saying, okay, we can't get 10 years of funding for, I don't know, pre-kindergarten or child tax credit or you name it, uh, expanded Medicare benefits. We'll just put it down for three years. That'll make it seem much less expensive. We can say the bill doesn't cost that much. Knowing full well when that time comes, the argument that will be framed uh, by liberals and by the media, which will adopt this, is are you really going to vote to take away these benefits from struggling families? In other words, you're giving it to them but you're making it only temporary, and then you're going to yank it away, and then there'll be a huge uproar. And if you don't yank it away, you've got two choices. You explode the deficit further, or you find some way, meaning higher taxes, to pay for it. That's the gimmick. And this guy is a liberal who supports the bill, wants some version of the bill to pass, but he says Manchin did the Democrats a favor by blowing the whistle on this fuzzy math. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. So that about brings me to the end of the podcast. Uh, we did a lot of this stuff up front, so you don't, you know, you can you can follow us so you didn't get the full five stories. You got four, but I did. I stuck a lot of those COVID stories in and tied them up uh, with one bow and ribbon. Uh, so once again, looking forward to the holiday weekend. Whether you're stuck at home, whether you were able to get where you were going, I hope you have a great weekend. And you know, it's a little bit depressing. It's a little bit um, psychologically difficult, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, to be having to talk day after day after day about people getting sick and about people's plans being ruined and what is the new normal and how dangerous is Omicron and how many people have gotten it. Um, some of the New York, the New York City, you know, New Year's Eve ball drop that's been curtailed but not canceled. Um, you got more pundits going on TV now, people like CNBC's Jim Cramer, uh, Stephen A. Smith of ESPN saying, yes, I too now have COVID, even though I was vaccinated, but thank God for the vaccines, and I only have mild symptoms, and I guess that sends a message. But when I get kind of down about it, because, you know, it's just wearying. I mean, 
when this first started, then we all thought, okay, we'll get through this. Maybe it's going to be a horrible year, but certainly by 2021, and certainly uh, once the vaccines were approved, we thought everything would get so much better. And, and there've been it's, it's so tantalizing because there have been periods of time when the mask mandates would drop, the lockdowns would end, the kids would go back to school, and then boom, we're back where we are. But you know what? I'm going to do the glass half full because... Unlike a year ago, unlike March of 2020, when we had no conception of the magnitude of this global pandemic, you got sick, there were no vaccines, there was no pill, now the FDA has approved a new pill from Merck and one other manufacturer. You know, you basically had to ride it out, and especially if you were elderly, and especially if you had... um, pre-existing conditions or immunocompromised, there's a pretty good chance you'd end up in the hospital and, you know, 800,000 American deaths later, uh, it's taken a real toll on our country. That's not the situation now. I mean, leaving aside the vax debate, people can choose to get vaccinated and they can pretty much be assured if they do get a breakthrough infection, they're not going to have to go to the hospital, their lives won't be that disrupted, and they're not going to face a life or death situation. Also, there's ways to treat it now, and that's another breakthrough. And also, you know, originally nobody could get the vaccines, and then only adults could get it, and now even uh, kids 5 to 12 can get it, and originally it was 12 to 17. So I think we will get through this period. We hope that Omicron will last a couple of months. And maybe this is the new normal. Maybe COVID is not going to go away for a very long time, but we can manage it. We can live our lives. We can avoid crazy risks, but take sensible risks, just as, you know, every time you get behind the wheel of a car, every time you get on an airplane, there are risks involved in life. I hope we're moving toward that. I hope we're also moving toward an end to this incredible polarization. If Donald Trump and Joe Biden can agree on one thing, vaccines, maybe there's some glimmer of hope uh, for next year. Now, Speaking of this podcast, I'll take a couple days off after Christmas, but I'll be back the middle of the week. So signing off for now. We'll see you next week. Talk to you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.